0: So we're going to kick off the book of Matthew um, today, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and, and we're going to be spending a long period of time on Sunday mornings uh, for the next you know, months studying the life and teachings and miracles of Jesus so that we can become better followers of Jesus, because what we want to be are followers of the teachings of Jesus, not just believers in him. So, we're going to be walking through that. And, uh, you know, Matthew is just one of 66 books written in the Bible. And uh, each book in the Bible has its own uh, historical setting, its own author. And you need to understand a little bit about those if you're going to better understand uh, how to apply the book to your life. So, what I'm going to do with the Gospel of Matthew is um, kind of as we go throughout the series talk about the history, because we could spend weeks just looking through the history of the book. But I don't want to do that. I want to just give you the history as it applies uh, to, to our everyday life so that we can better understand uh, the author's intended meaning And in understanding the history of the book is clearly an important part of understanding the original meaning, and therefore helps us to apply it to our life. So Matthew is one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels in the New Testament of the Bible. And it's uh, the four Gospels are the four biographies of Jesus. So Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, his name was also called Levi, and he was a tax collector. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the series, what that means when Matthew shares his own story of when he encountered Jesus. Uh, but, but Matthew was written... Most scholars believe it was the first uh, book of the New Testament written uh, very early on, definitely the first gospel written, and it was written primarily to a Jewish audience. In other words, Matthew sat down and thought, how can I teach Jesus to Jewish people like myself? Um, It was written in Aramaic, uh, Jews would have spoken that language and understood that language and specifically what we're going to see in Matthew is because he's writing to a Jewish crowd. Now the Jews had been waiting for hundreds of years for the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament, which was the Jewish Bible essentially, had been finished around 400 years before the coming of Jesus. And they had this promise that God would usher in his kingdom a new way of life, and he would do so by sending the Messiah. And so every Jew in the first century was waiting for God to send his Messiah. Well, Matthew was a follower of Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus brought in the kingdom of God. But he believed that the Jews, for the most part, missed it. He was there, he walked among them, and they ended up having him crucified. So what he's trying to do in the book of Matthew is say, here are the indicators. The Old Testament is filled with indicators, prophecies they're called, so that Jews could know when the Messiah had arrived. And what Matthew's trying to do is say, look at how Jesus fulfilled these indicators. He was the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and this is his kingdom that he brought. It's a way of life. So we're going to learn all about that through the book of Matthew. And I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 3. The reason I'm starting in chapter 3 is that chapters 1 and 2 are essentially the story of Jesus' birth. So we'll go back to 1 and 2 at Christmas uh, in December and hit chapters 1 and 2. We're going to start in chapter 3. And what I'm going to do as I battle the effects of the ragweed that I complain about every Sunday morning, What I'm going to do is read through uh, chapter 3, 1 through 12, and then we're going to break it down sort of verse by verse and circle some words and and talk about what it means for our life today. So Matthew chapter 3 would invite you, please bring your Bibles. There are some Bibles back there in the entrances of the cinema if you want to follow along. Download it on your smartphone, uh, Bible app, whatever, and follow along. So chapter 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Sounds like an interesting guy. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's a pleasant man. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. <clears throat> now, if you're new to the Bible, you may be wondering, what in the world does all that mean and how in the world does that apply to my life today? So we're going to break this down and hopefully you can leave with an understanding of why this is relevant to your walk with God today. So Matthew is about to introduce Jesus as the public adult ministry figure, son of God, but he starts by talking a little bit about John the Baptist. So we're back to three one. In those days, John the Baptist. Let me tell you a little bit about John the Baptist. He was called John the Baptist because that was kind of like his handle because of what he did. He was an immerser, a baptizer. People came to him. He dunked them underwater as a part of their walk with God. So he wasn't a Baptist in the sense of like, you know, Jerry Falwell or your Aunt Bethel, who's a Baptist and goes to Grace Baptist on Laurel Road or something like that. He wasn't that kind of Baptist. He was one who would baptize people. So a better translation might be John the Baptizer. And Matthew wants to point out that John the Baptizer was there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Keep that in your mind. Let's move on to this next idea here. Uh, He was preaching in the desert of Judea. Now, September 11, 2011, when we as Americans hear the phrase 9 11 now, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, our mind is filled with images and thoughts and emotions. Um, I remember where I was. You probably remember where you were. We remember that morning. Uh, because the term 9-11 has just come to be one of those iconic phrases in American life. Well, in Israel, in the first century, there were different ideas and concepts and phrases that did the same thing that 9-11 does to us. It bring, it's kind of a, a pregnant phrase that may not mean much to other people, but to this particular people group meant a lot. So the desert of Judea is one of those phrases when Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish crowd, says the desert of Judea, he knows that it's one of those 9-11 phrases that's going to spark a lot of memories because every Jew knew that their ancestor has wandered in the desert of Judea waiting for their blessing from God, the promised land. So they were freed from slavery in Egypt and for 40 years they wandered in the desert of Judea and it became iconic as a place where you waited for God's blessing. Now this was 1,500 years before John the Baptist came. But when Matthew mentions that there's a guy named John and he's gathering a lot of people in the desert of Judea, he's sparking those memories of the people of Israel waiting for their blessing. Now it goes on, and we're going to get back to the word repent in a minute. It says this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then it says that John's clothes are made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. <coughs> now, kind of interesting that. Book of Matthew is twenty-eight chapters long, and yet he finds it important to note that John the Baptist wore camel hair and a leather belt. I mean, you know, Matthew doesn't seem like the what not to wear crowd, where he's you know talking about fashion, but he has a very specific purpose for this that we would all, in our modern-day um, mindsets, miss. Okay, in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of John the Baptist. There was a great and powerful prophet that lived in Israel named Elijah. Now, my wife and I named our youngest son after Elijah because he was a powerful man who turned the hearts of Israel back to their God. And one of the indicators or prophecies in the Old Testament for the coming of the Messiah was that Elijah would reappear. So all of Israel now, at the time of Jesus, they know that Elijah is going to appear. And that's going to mark the coming of the Messiah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, 1,500 years before the coming of John the Baptist, there is a description of the prophet Elijah. He wore a hairy garment and a leather belt. And all of Israel at the time of Jesus reading Matthew knew that Elijah dressed in camel hair or in a hairy garment and a leather belt. So when Matthew says, Here's a man at the beginning of Jesus' ministry who's wearing camel hair and a leather belt, they're going to make the link with John the Baptist and Elijah. Here's why that's important. I'm going to turn to the last page of the Old Testament. The books are closed, so to speak. Silence for 400 years. People don't know when the Messiah is going to come, but here's what they know. The last prophecy written. Malachi 4, 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome or dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, what people know is that the Messiah is coming to bring the way of God and Elijah is going to be an indicator. And what Matthew's saying is, here's the guy that dresses and acts like Elijah, and he's right on cue with the coming of Jesus. Now, he eats locusts and wild honey, and this is a big deal for me. You could probably care less. I had always thought about the bugs locusts, okay? Want to hear my locust story? <clears throat> this is my locust story. When I was in college, we lived in a quad. There were four, four uh, dorm rooms, in a central, um, like, lounge area with one desecrated bathroom that eight men used. Um, And there was a locust once in our sink. Big, nasty-looking, angry-looking locust. And, and, And I remember one night, I was sitting in the lounge on the couch, and, like, four of my friends... You know, so you picture, you know, men-sized men, for lack of a better description, creeping in the bathroom, and, and they have a can of hairspray and a lighter. <coughs> <laughs> so it's going down. And I, they're going after this locust that's trapped in the drain of the sink, because nobody wants to mess with it. So here's what I hear, and I'm going to take this off, okay, because I don't want to, I hear these guys going in, and they're creeping in, because everybody's nervous, because you know locusts look nasty, and I hear, (coughs) this locust just starts screaming, and four grown men are now scrambling over each other, running out into the... So, you know, I'm just sitting there, and I see guys creeping in. And then I just see this chaos of activity running out the front door while this locust is screaming in the sink. I severely damaged my vocal cords. <coughs> that's my, that's my, um, my locust story. Anyway, what I learned when I went over to Israel is that there is a tree that bears fruit year-round. And it's the locust tree, and it bears fruit called locusts that look like a giant bean. So when Middle Easterners think of John the Baptist who survived on locusts and wild honey, it makes complete sense to them. He ate the fruit of the locust tree with honey, and all of a sudden that doesn't seem like such a bad diet. Because I had always wondered, how in the world do you eat 1,500 calories a day in locusts and honey? But that's what we're talking about here. Anyway, what, what what Matthew's trying to do is link John the Baptist with Elijah and help the, Israel, the, the, the Jews understand that just like the Messiah would be brought in by Elijah... Jesus was ushered in by an Elijah-like man named John the Baptist. Okay, (coughs) in a little bit later on, uh, verse 6, Matthew says, "...confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River." The Jordan River is another one of those 9-11 words that sparks a lot of thoughts and feelings in the mind of a a first-century Jew. Because just like God had guided the Israelites into the desert to await entry into the promised land, he also guided them from the desert through the Jordan River into the promised land. So Matthew's recreating the scene and saying, here we are in the desert wilderness. Incidentally, here's a picture of the... Can you go back to the picture? This is a picture of the Judean wilderness, and you really can't see it all that well, I guess, because it's kind of washed out, but it's just this vast expanse of brown, dusty nothingness, and the Jordan River flows through that. And God has his people back at this same place, back at the same water, ready to usher in a new way of life, a new kingdom. And so... Matthew is trying to link together what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with what happened at the beginning of the people of, of, of Israel's identity in God. Incidentally, theme throughout scripture, a walk with God often begins, usually begins at the water. John baptized people as a part of their journey with God. In the New Testament, we see people encountering water baptism as a beginning of their walk with God, just like the Israelites encountered going through water. It's almost like God wants us to have a common beginning at the water of baptism. All right, let's go back to John's message now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me talk for a minute about repentance. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word repent. Now, if you don't have a church background, maybe nothing. Maybe you've never even heard of the word repent. But for me, what comes to my mind is anger, like oppression, judgment, guilt. Let me tell you specifically what comes to my mind when I hear the word repent. Now, my grandma's maiden name is Yoder. So... I have some Amish roots, and uh, when I was growing up, we would often go down to Amish country. You know, Millersburg, Berlin, um, Winesburg, um you know, Sugar Creek, basically Route Thirty Nine and Sixty Two, Heaven's Waiting Room, um, <coughs> and and we would uh, we would go down there, and we still do. And when my wife and I go down there, um, uh, toward the uh, Route 39 and 62 in Berlin, there's a place called Saul's Market. Have you ever been there? To Saul's? It looks like a big wooden castle. Um, across the street is a little church. And there is usually a guy out in front of this little wooden church holding up a Bible, yelling. <laughs> and you can only understand a few words that he says, like hell and repent. But he's angry, and he's yelling at people, and it's muddled, and it's confusing. But the word repent comes through loud and clear, like a verbal club. Repent, repent, repent. And if you're like me, that sort of a thing tends to repel you rather than draw you in. He's not the kind of guy that I'm going to invite to my you know Friday, fire, relaxing thing. This is a guy who's angry and who wants people to know that they're wrong. But what we need to do, because it's important to Matthew and was important to John the Baptist and Jesus, the word repent is a very important word in a walk with God. And it carries with it the idea of confessing that something is wrong in your life, feeling appropriate levels of guilt and remorse over that action, and then committing to turn carries with it the idea of an about face, a 180, walking one way and then turning and going a different way. Doesn't mean perfection. It's not like, okay, now I am you know, have completely purged my life of all profanity. I have now repented. Repenting is that moment when you realize, here's the change I need to make. I've been living wrong, and I need to make a turn. So John begins with this message, repent. Change the way you live, because God's kingdom is here. Now he goes on, and we're going to define this a little further. (coughs) So we know repentance is a big part of where our heart needs to be when we encounter Jesus. That's what John set the people up for goes on to say, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the religious leaders of the day, the clergymen, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, one of the most dangerous aspects of the Israeli terrain are the vipers. When I was there in May, while everyone was concerned about my safety because of you know, Gaza and, and you know, terrorism, really the greatest danger were the vipers on the ground so jesus is, or john the baptist and later jesus uses the same language is calling the religious leaders of the day you are the most deadly thing around the snake was also associated with the garden of eden bringing sin into the world so he is using some severely derogatory language for the religious leaders and he tells them who warned you to keep from the coming wrath produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He goes on to say, in verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's talking about repenting and producing good fruit. And then he's talking about this idea of of burning the bad and sorting the good. And he goes on to talk about Jesus. He says, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, which was an agricultural tool of sorts, is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. So what John is telling these people is, you have got it wrong. You need to repent and change your heart. And there is someone who is coming, who through the power of the Holy Spirit is going to sort the good from the bad. And I think we make a mistake. I think those of us who have grown up in the church are too quick when we hear the unquenchable fire to jump to the hell conclusion. I don't necessarily think that John is talking about hell here. I think he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, the work of Jesus in the world. Pointing out sin and burning that out of our life and rounding up the good and making it better because John seems to be talking with the Pharisees about their life now about repenting and producing good fruit now and then he follows it up with more agricultural language almost as if to say there is one coming who is going to burn out the bad and bring out the good But that all starts with an attitude of repentance. I think the message of Scripture is clear, and the message of John the Baptist is, that if we want to follow Jesus, we're following an unquenchable fire that aims to burn from our life everything that doesn't honor God and make greater in our life the way of God, the kingdom of God. But the key to all that is repentance. An attitude that says, God, I am open to listening to you. To hearing your word. And when I'm convicted of the junk in my life, allowing your spirit to burn it out so that good can come in my life instead. And this is what God does when we follow Him. This is the good news of the gospel. It is hard to make changes in your life, but when we submit to the leadership of Jesus, what we're doing is we're inviting in unquenchable fire that will burn out the bad and bring up the good. A couple of years ago, (coughs) I had a major moment of repentance in my life. Um... God opened my eyes to a sizable blind spot. For the first 10 years of my life in ministry, you know, studied ministry in school, studied scripture, read scripture, all that, I believed that the purpose of our church and my life as a follower of Jesus was primarily, if not only, To help people get to know Jesus. To help people find and follow God. That was it. I did not care, really, about helping the poor. About reaching out to those in need. And when people would come to me and ask, Why does Polaris not do anything for the poor? Anything might not be fair, but why why are you not more focused on the poor and those in need? I would say with a straight face, God calls some churches to care for the poor, but God has called our church to lead people to Jesus, and we need to be very focused on that and not get distracted by the poor. That seemed right to me at the time. And I had never spent time with the poor, had never shaken a homeless person's hand, had never seen third world poverty, had never given more to the poor than I spent on seafood for myself in any given year. And I remember beginning to read books like Read Jesus and Missional Renaissance. Books that, that, that called out the fact that Jesus clearly had a heart for the poor How can you say you follow Jesus if you don't do the things that he does? And I began to feel that unquenchable fire nudging in on my territory. But what really happened is my heart was broken. And while I am a thick-headed, stiff-necked man, that was one instance when repentance filled my heart because I realized I was wrong. And I brought that before God, and I watched God burn that selfishness and that wrong thinking out of my character and build up, and it's still going on, I'm by no means the most generous man in the room, okay? but begin to build up the good fruit in my life as an alternative. And I've seen that in my own life and in the lives of others. And that is the message that John the Baptist brings in, is that Jesus, if we're going to follow him, we can expect encountering the burning fire of the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives and burning out the sin and gathering up the good and making it better. Let me share one final thought. Um, the gospel is good news, and there's a part of repentance where we might be tempted to grovel. Um, you know, maybe maybe we want to like pay for our sins in order to be forgiven by feeling really really bad for an extended amount of time but the good news of jesus is that he has already paid for your sins and through the cross and through faith in his sacrifice you are already forgiven so you don't repent in order to gain forgiveness or to like win back the favor of god you repent because god wants to make you better but once you have had that moment of guilt acknowledging your sin you are free to let it go Because God doesn't see it anymore. So the message of repentance is one of making yourself better, not one of groveling over your past sins. Because of the good news of what Jesus did, we don't have to live in guilt and shame. We can live in freedom that is only available to us through Jesus.